Welcome to the LIC and today's lunchtime lecture about doing documentary photography in China. Um, I'm Bing Chun Meng. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Media and Communications here at LIC. Um, and uh, we are very pleased to have um, the speaker we, um, um, with us today. Um, Ryan is a Canadian-born um, award-winning photographer, and he first visited China in year 2001. And after a three-month trip around the country, um, he decided to stay, and he has never left since, so I was told. Um, and it's, it's also very much his um, first trip to China that inspired um, his interest in becoming a, a documentary photographer. Um, and ever since that trip, his um, image has graced the pages of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, Fortune, the Sunday Times Magazine, and the Financial Times Magazine. So um, today, Ryan is probably going to talk for a half an hour or so about how he got interested in doing this in China and about his, his work. And, We'll show you images about the type of, of work um, he does. And then we will leave a good 20 minutes or so for um, Q&A and, and discussion, because um, we do need to finish at um, 5 to 2. So let's um, please join me to welcome um, Mr. Ryan Pell and to give us a lecture. So just the lights a little bit, and then I'll uh, begin, because I've got quite a lot of imagery. Uh, in my presentation, so I just want to thank the LSE and the professor for uh, having me here today, and thank you all for showing up. Um, it's great to be able to come. It's great to be able to leave China and share my work with uh, the Western world. Um, today, I'm going to talk about documenting China, um, photography in the Middle Kingdom, and my photography is. Uh, I guess my goal is to document China, uh, document the change in China, both uh, the social and the economic development and how that's changing and affecting the lives of Chinese people. And <clears throat> this is one of my, one of my favorite pictures from, from my work in China. And it was in the New York Times in, uh, in 2007, I think. And it's Shenzhen. And you can see there's just tons of 20, 30-story skyscrapers. And the interesting thing about this picture was that in 1979, Shenzhen was a small farming village. And today, it's one of China's largest cities, uh, full of skyscrapers and business and factories and everything you can imagine. And Shenzhen is very much the product of Deng Xiaoping's reform and, and opening period. Uh, it was the flagship of his kind of reign in China to take this small farming village right on the border of Hong Kong and turn it into kind of an economic powerhouse, which is something that he actually succeeded in doing. <coughs> so, um, who am I? Um, I spent my life trying to be invisible, uh, which is quite difficult in China because I'm white and six feet tall. <laughs> so you can imagine that when you do have a chance to walk into a very small village or a factory or something like that, you stand out. And that's true, I stand out really, really awkwardly. But uh, but over time, you get to learn that spending time with people, and you learn how to blend in, and uh, and then eventually people forget you're there, and then that's when you have a chance to make uh, some really strong imagery as people go about their lives, so that you're not interacting with them, but you're just a witness to what's happening. Uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada, and I graduated from the University of Toronto in 2001, and. I studied international politics, and I took some classes uh, that were dealt with Chinese history and Chinese politics. And I wouldn't say that I was completely hooked by my studies uh, on Chinese history and Chinese politics, but then later after I graduated that year, I thought that I should take a chance and visit China because I had read so much about it. And you know, I, 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 for those of you who are studying Chinese history and politics, Jonathan Spence has written for like 50 books about China, and I ended up reading a whole bunch of them and was quite interested. So <clears throat> I decided to travel to China, and I did a 90-day circumnavigation of China by myself in 2001. And I traveled by train and by bus, and I hitchhiked through parts of Xinjiang, and hitchhiked into Tibet, and went to Mount Everest Base Camp, and came out through Southeast China, and, and right away I was hooked. 
Um, and I didn't have an interest in photography then. I was just basically backpacking around. And I was blown away. And I basically went home for Christmas that year. And within about three weeks, I had moved back to China, uh, to the surprise of my family. And I've really never left since. Um, I moved to China in early uh, in 2002. I began working as a photographer in 2003. And I'm basically self-trained. Uh, I never studied any photography uh, courses while I was at university, and I've never been formally taught. And, uh, and it's been an interesting journey. I started off working for some travel magazines. I started working for airline <coughs> magazines. I started doing travel, travel photography from China as a way to kind of um, build up my, my career. And then I was very lucky in 2005 that I became a, a regular contributor to the New York Times. And um, <clears throat> this was at a time where the New York Times uh, had quite a few writers in China, and their uh, reporting was quite aggressive and, and quite exciting. So I got a chance to get caught up in that. And it really helped me not only define the kind of work I was interested in doing in China, but also gave me a, a way of sharing my work with the wider, uh, wider English-speaking world or, or English news-consuming world. In 2007, I started uh, branching out into more magazine work and uh, started working for Time Magazine, Newsweek, and Fortune. And in 2009, um, I was named one of the 30 emerging photographers in the world by a, a US Photography Association. And this is uh, one of my Newsweek covers. And um, <clears throat> it's a woman who worked, used to work, at the uh, Smart Union Factory in Dongguan, which is in the Pearl River Delta. And this was taken just after the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008. And of course, as the United States, and, uh, and to, to a large extent also Western Europe, was, was in the bite of this financial crisis, and the credit markets dried up, and uh, the stock markets kind of went into free fall, uh, factories all over China were going bankrupt. And in Dongguan, which had spent 20 years kind of booming and blossoming as this manufacturing center of China, uh, all of a sudden had as many as 10 million unemployed migrant workers, this woman being one of them. Smart Union is a Taiwanese company that, um, that created like um, small electronic uh, parts for computers, among other things. They shuttered their factory with no notice and basically created 6,000 unemployed people within 24 hours. And people like this were shocked because a lot of people, even though they have jobs in factories in China, they don't really uh, have a chance to save any money. Their, their wages aren't high enough. A lot, of, a lot of them send a large portion of their money home to support their families, and they live kind of subsistently. And this woman was sharing her story with me about how she didn't actually have enough money to go home, and she didn't have enough money to stay in Dongguan because she was uh, living outside the factory in a rented apartment, which a lot of people do. And she was having a lot of financial difficulties and she really didn't have enough money to pay her, her rent for the next month and she started to cry. And I, I, I got that picture from her. Uh, documenting the lives of people in China. I like to focus on China through its people, its culture. Uh, all of this, of course, is changing rapidly. Uh, China just recently became the second largest economy in the world, overtaking Japan. It's had 30 years of breakneck growth and development, and of course taking a traditional agrarian society and fast forwarding through uh, an industrial revolution, you get a lot of change in the way people live their lives. And this is what I'm most interested in as a photographer. Not only the positives, but also the negatives. Obviously, anytime you take 200 or 300 million people from the countryside and push them into cities, or actually they haven't been pushed, they've come on their own seeking work and a better life, or um, you know, services like better education and better healthcare, uh, you're gonna have all kinds of friction. And in these kinds of places where the friction occurs, I think this is where some of the best documentary can be done. Is my job important? Uh, I like to think so. And the main reason for that is that the domestic media in China is not free. That's no surprise to probably all of you here that the, the media in China is very much state-run. 
and uh, editors that do fall out of line and start to criticize or, or go in their own direction often get reprimanded, often get arrested, and <coughs> almost always lose their jobs. So <clears throat> I feel that independent uh, journalists or photographers or researchers have a very important role to play in <laughs> expressing or, or sharing what's actually happening in China because you just can't read the China Daily or the Shanghai Daily or the government newspapers and get a, a true understanding of how the country is moving and changing. There's billions of foreign direct investment going into China every year and I think the wider world, not only those companies that are investing but also individual citizens, have a real responsibility to actually know what's going on and I hope through my photography and my work in collaboration with other writers and magazines uh, helps facilitate that that process of, of greater understanding. <clears throat> so, um, photography in China. When I decided to become a photographer, uh, I always knew that I had no interest in kind of being involved in, in real situations of danger. Uh, you could say that a lot of reporters and, uh, and photographers, they, they end up, you know, trying, a lot of them try to report from war zones. And obviously, this is also very important um, to document conflict, and we don't live in a very nice world. And, uh, and a lot of people find, you know, there's a lot of good journalists and photographers in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places where there's a lot of conflict. And I knew right away that this was not for me. Uh, I believe in self-preservation. <laughs> I very much like not having any holes in my body. Uh, I do believe that war photography and, and war journalism is crucial, uh, especially in a democratic society and especially because democratic countries are basically heavily involved in these conflicts in a lot of cases, but uh, it's not for me. So I very much like doing uh, lifestyle features about how people's lives are changing in China. It's, it's in the industry, among photographers, it's often called social documentary work. Um, and it's much safer. Um, I, I like to focus on social development. And of course, you can look at families. Um, and within those families, how people are growing older. And of course, the issue of healthcare, which is a global issue in both rich countries and poor. And, you know. Right now, well, for the last 20 years, China, for the first time really in its development, has families being torn apart <coughs> so that, uh, for economic reasons. So you get people from Hunan and people from Sichuan uh, in, in southwest China, for example, who are leaving their parents behind uh, and working in factories in the Pearl River Delta. And, and <coughs> in order to earn a wage and, and send money back home because there really is nothing going on in the countryside. And families cannot be supported uh, from agrarian, you know, from, from, from their work on the farm anymore. So you get families being broke up and then a lot of people actually have babies or get pregnant while working in these factories and then they bring their babies home, leave them with grandma and grandpa and then go back to the factories. So you get parents actually not even raising their own children. And, and the grandma and grandparents are doing it. And this obviously has a lot of issues. You know, children are growing up without their parents. Uh, grandparents are still, you know, taking care of the children, and that can also be a burden in some ways. So <clears throat> all these social dynamics are playing out in China. And, you know, they're not good or bad, but they're happening. So I think it's really important to document that. Migration from the cities to the countryside. 200 million people are just flooding into cities. I live in Shanghai. That's my home. Uh, I've lived there for uh, nearly 10 years. And in that time period, I think the, the population of Shanghai has nearly doubled. Um, and, and it's doubled from, from migrant workers coming from all over China into Shanghai for the chance of a better employment <coughs> opportunity. Whether they are the delivery man who delivers my pizzas in my house, which are most often the migrant workers, to factory workers, to garbage collectors. Uh, often in Shanghai in the summertime, there's a huge army of recyclers who hit the streets collecting bottles, styrofoam, cardboard, paper, anything. And it's seasonal. They come in in the summers, they collect all the, all the garbage from the rich people in Shanghai, and then they're able to earn income from that. And then in the winters, they go back to their homes. So it's a lot of seasonal migration as well. 
And what we're getting is we're getting an upheaval of traditional values, beliefs, and a real transfer of traditional China into a modern society. And uh, you can see that in a city like Shanghai, because Shanghai is actually the largest, or China, for example, is BMW's largest market for cars. There's more Rolls Royces in China than there are in the UK. Uh, any given day in Shanghai, when I walk from my home to one of my favorite restaurants, I'll often see at least one Ferrari. Um, Apple just opened two massive Apple stores in Shanghai, and everyone has an iPhone, and just about everyone in Shanghai has an iPad. So, you know, China 30 years ago, as it was coming out, you know, Mao, Mao Zedong died in 1976, and as they were transforming, Deng Xiaoping um, managed, to, managed to take over leadership in what was a really messy kind of transition, it is, now, uh, is now as much or more of a consumer society than the West. And you could say that traditional values are being eroded at lightning speed which is also interesting for photography. Um, and with all those things, economic development, social development, I also like to do travel stories. Uh, I chose to live in China, not just to be a documentary photographer or to document China, but I also love to travel. This is very much a part of who I am. And uh, who doesn't want to climb a holy mountain or visit a remote monastery in Tibet? And that's also something that I really enjoy and that's often how I take my vacations, which are also photography trips, uh, visiting kind of more remote areas of China, doing hiking. China is not only crowded cities and you know, polluted factory towns, but it, it also has some of the most stunning nature that I've ever had a, a, an opportunity to experience, and, and I absolutely love that part. Um, here, uh, for example, is one of my travel photography uh, images. And this is in Gonga, the Gonga Shan Monastery, Gonga Si. And <clears throat> what happened here is I hiked for four days through the mountains. Uh, there's no road. And, uh, and it was about, we walked about 30 kilometers a day at an average altitude of about 4,500 meters <coughs> to get to this remote monastery. And it's at, the f it's at the base camp or the foot of this massive Gonga Shan, Gonga Mountain. It's almost 8,000 meters high. And it's just the most beautiful kind of place you could ever imagine. And of course, having walked there for four days, when I finally saw it, I almost broke down in tears and uh, had a chance to have a decent meal. But <laughs> the, uh, the monastery is very remote, and there's about four or five monks that live there almost permanently. And every morning, one of them uh, comes into the main prayer hall with the morning light coming through a window behind him. And he uh, chants and prays. So. A uh, beautiful kind of moment, and uh, so working in China, uh, it's challenging. Yes, it is challenging. Uh, when I first moved to China, I did not speak Chinese, and even today, my Chinese is average at best. It's a very difficult language, and uh, it can be difficult getting around. And even people who do speak excellent Chinese, when they go to remote parts of Guangxi or Sichuan, <laughs> or Gansu, or or even Xinjiang in Tibet, your Chinese is useless. Uh, because the local dialects are incredibly difficult. So uh, it's always good. I, I often work with a local translator or assistant who can get through the dialects. And it's really important, actually, because a lot of times when you come into a small town and you speak that Beijing, Putonghua, Mandarin, uh, and, you, and you start asking questions, people will try to reply you in that same Mandarin. And sometimes it can change their answers or their emotions or the way they kind of communicate with you because they're not using the language they feel most comfortable with. So it's really important to work with someone who's local so that they can speak more freely in their Sichuan dialect or, or something like this. So I find that that's very important. Uh, it can be exhausting. Um, back when I started working, the infrastructure in China was not what it is today. Um, long bus rides, bad train rides, uh, dangerous airplane flights. You know, It was only about a decade ago when planes were falling out of the sky every month or so in China. <coughs> but now that's much better. Uh, China, I could say, has some of the best infrastructure, transportation infrastructure in the world. I visit the United States often. I go home to Canada. And I'm appalled at how kind of the Western world has let a lot of its transportation infrastructure fall apart. 
and now you know China has four lane, six lane expressways that go flat across the country. Brand new airports, uh, amazing fleet of planes. Uh, it's become much much easier to travel. In. Diversity, working in China is, of course, I'm biased, but I really think it's the most interesting country in the world because it's so large and so diverse. And uh, I always pinch myself because when I live in Shanghai. I'm living in a Western world. I'm living in, and I have all of my comforts. You know, there's a Starbucks right down the street. It's pathetic, but it's true. Um, and, and then I can hop on a plane or, or, or jump, on a, jump on a bus and then be transformed into a remote countryside. And then if I were to go a little bit further, I could enter into Muslim China or Xinjiang province, which of course is much more Central Asian. And then if I'm, you know, if I'm feeling really frisky, I can jump on a plane and head to Tibet, which of course is a, another world completely. So the diversity of China is one of the things that's always excited me about how I feel like I'm literally living in, and, and traveling within six countries, but I only need one visa. Um, of course, there are risks to working in China. I mentioned earlier that the media is not free, and a lot of people like myself are... Uh, have to suffer a lot of intimidation sometimes. Um, we get followed, we get uh, interfered with, we get harassed. Uh, there was just a case, I think it was last week or the week before, where a CNN television journalist went to visit a blind um, lawyer in rural Shandong province uh, to get his opinion about something that had happened. And he was like, had rocks thrown at him. He was almost beaten up. It was on television. I don't know if anyone saw it. But this kind of stuff happens literally every day. Um, and, and it can be quite risky and quite exhausting and, and challenging. Um, of course, there are two types of journalists in China, the international journalists, journalists and the domestic journalists. You know, it's funny. The domestic journalists, um, there's not a strong tradition of journalism in China. I often speak in, in journalism classes uh, at other universities, and we talk about kind of the tradition of journalism in China. It doesn't have a strong tradition like it does in the West. A lot of people, I think, in the Western world see, see independent journalism as a way of keeping track of government and big business, and, and you know, where, where the balances of power will never really get out of hand because we've got kind of investigative journalism and we're, we've got news, and it's true that can go too far. But imagine our life without it, and, and that's what kind of exists in China. So the domestic journalist movement, they don't really have a, they're not as free thinking as, and as independent as, as Western journalists. And there's a lot of intimidation and censorship that they have to deal with on a daily basis, the domestic journalists. But there's also a lot of corruption. And this was a case a few years ago in Shanxi province, which is a large mining province <coughs> in central, north central China, where a investigative journalist was going around to illegal mining operations, coal mining operations, and saying to the coal mine owners, hey, if you don't give me 20,000 RMB or, or 2,000 pounds, uh, I'm going to do a report about your illegal mine and then you're going to get shut down. So there are stories about how journalists uh, try to take bribes from you know, potentially exposing illegal operations in China. And of course, from a, from a journalism standpoint, that's just wrong. But that kind of tradition hasn't really <laughs> brokered into the, into the domestic journalism movement there. And of course, there are international journalists uh, like myself. I don't really consider myself a journalist, but I do do journalism work in order to make a living. Um, and of course, we are intimidated and uh, sometimes even detained. And I'll, uh, I'll get into a story about that later. Wow, it's almost 30 minutes already. It's fast. Um, international journalists, it's a little bit different than working in Canada. There is no freedom of speech. Uh, you really have to be, uh, really have to protect the people that you work with and, and protect the people who actually end up in your stories. A lot of people don't want to talk to you because they're afraid of being reprimanded. And uh, of course, dealing with local officials is always painful because they're not always very well educated and they don't like it when you come into their fiefdom and expose something. Um, I've chosen to become a freelance photographer, not a staff photographer. There's obviously a difference. Staff photographers that, who, for example, in China that work for the Associated Press or Reuters, they're always told what to do and, and, and have to kind of uh, work every day and uh, often you know, photograph press conferences and travel with writers. I'm a freelance photographer 
which means I take assignments and, and often do a lot of work on my own and sell it later. So I have a much more free hand to try to develop a lot of my own work, uh, which I enjoy. <coughs> and what does the future hold of journalism in China? Well, I've only lived in China almost during Hu Jintao's reign, and I can tell you that I feel it's becoming less uh, free in China every day for people like myself to work. Uh, of course, Hu Jintao moves on in 2012, and it'll be interesting to see what the new leadership has to say about uh, freedom of journalism. Um, I'll skip down here to uh, my Dongguan factory story. I've spent a lot of time in Dongguan in a lot of different uh, experiences, but <clears throat> one, of the, one of the more scarier things that happened to me was I was detained by a factory owner in Dongguan. So it was the Thomas and Train lead paint story of 2008, I believe. And I was down in Dongguan, and we walked into a factory, and we, we went to the guards at the front, at the front of the factory, because there's always one of those gates, and we said, we'd like to speak with the boss about, about the manufacturing here. And they said, oh, he's in that building over there. So one of the guards came with us. And then when we went into the building, the guard left, and then we, we ended up finding the boss, and he was so shocked that we were there. And we hadn't taken any pictures or hadn't talked to anyone. Um, he detained us. He basically um, you know, said, okay, I'll talk to you guys in a second. Why don't you come into this room? And stupidly, we went into the room. And, and five minutes later, there were about 20 18-year-old security guards uh, in the room with us blocking the door. And so, of course, we're on our phones. And my, my writing partner, David Barbosa for the New York Times, he was uh, calling the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, and he's like, these people won't let us go. And, and, um, and we were just sitting there, and they actually held us for about 14 hours. And we had uh, contacted the local Waiban, who are like the journalism police in China, and they couldn't do anything. And then we even had uh, calls into the local police in Dongguan. And the local police actually came to the factory and said, hey, how are you guys doing? And we're like, yeah, we're okay, but can we leave? And by that stage, we actually wanted to go to the police station because we wanted, we wanted the situation to be under some kind of official government response to us being there. And the police said, oh, we can't take you to the police station. And I'm like, why? He goes, oh, he's a big boss. He's way over us. And I, and I found that really strange that a factory boss would trump you know, government security or government police uh, in these towns. And that just goes to show you, in a lot of cases, that these factory bosses, because of their influence in the local economy and perhaps the bribes that they pay or the relationships that they have, actually have more clout than the police. Uh, and then eventually I was dragged to a police station at four in the morning, forced to sign a confession, and then was sent on my way. But it doesn't happen every day, but it does happen quite often. It's really a never-ending cat and mouse game, uh, which is exhausting. And I really believe that this kind of cat and mouse between the international journalists and the security, the public security bureau in China, uh, is one of the reasons why a lot of the media that comes out of China is so negative. You know, Chinese people always say, oh, the, media, the Western media is so negative about China. Well, you guys should stop chasing us around all the time. You know, maybe, maybe we'd go into a factory or go into an interview actually with a smile and, and knowing that we weren't going to be you know, detained or chased by a black Santana with tinted windows, which is what all these kind of security guys end up driving. Uh, during the Olympics, uh, there were 40 uh, cases of uh, journalism interference uh, in between 2007 and 2009, there were 335 cases of interference, cameras broken, um, you know, equipment detained, whatever happens. There's very, very little is there actually physical violence, uh, which is another reason why I'm happy living in China. I don't mind being detained as long as people don't hit me or try to shoot me. And um, it's something that I feel I can live with. So corruption, intimidation, <coughs> censorship, and, uh, and even there are some lives at risk. You know, sometimes bloggers who who expose uh, crime and things like that or, or have kind of negative things to say about the Chinese society can often uh, have their lives at risk. And I believe it was 2007, there were uh, a series of bloggers that were actually stabbed and, uh, and killed, which is really rare. And I'll just get into some pictures here. Um, this is Xiamen, which is in Fujian province. It's a, a booming industrial town. and. Uh, I always like going to these kinds of pretty places, and you can see the high-rise buildings in the background. I'm actually on Rulongyu, which is a, is a popular tourism area for Chinese tourists. Um, old age in China is a big problem, and actually the development of old age homes in China is a booming business. 
because I'll, again, I, I mentioned that traditional values are changing into modern values, and a lot of um, young businessmen and women in China actually don't want to take care of their aging parents. So they're shuffling them into old age homes like we do here in the West. And this was an old age home in Shanghai, and of course, most people spend their days playing maja. That's a factory worker in Dongguan from 2006. He's from Sichuan province. Makes 800 RMB a month working for a factory, and he's not able to save any of it. And he was actually in debt. Um, I could go into this. I mean, workers that want to come and come down and work into these places, they have to, uh, you know, find. Uh, they have to pay like job agents and, and go to job fairs, and they end up spending a lot of money up front. Sometimes it often puts them in debt. Uh, and a lot of them just use their salaries over the next few years to pay back that debt. The entire system of migrant workers finding work is actually incredibly corrupt, and, and this guy later kind of was really upset about it. Um, but that's, that was his room that he lives in behind with, that he shares with six or seven <coughs> other people. Uh, of course, China is amazingly diverse, and this is Kashgar, the Idka Mosque, which I visit often. Um, and of course, these are Muslim people praying in a midday Friday prayer. <coughs> the internet in China is taking hold. China, I read the other day, has over 100 million bloggers. Coming from Canada, that's crazy. There's only 30 million Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, having that number of 100 million people blogging on the internet in China blows my mind. Um, but. This is an internet cafe in Hangzhou, which is kind of the Silicon Valley of China. It's home to Alibaba and uh, some of the other major internet companies in China. And this is a common scene. You know, large LCD, flat screen, uh, flat screens, guys that are uh, men and women, whether they're watching Chinese movies, watching English movies, which they can get uh, on these systems, whether they're uh, texting or communicating with friends back home, or, or whether they're just doing email or playing games. But it's really important to know that there's about 400 million people in China that are actually online. And um, as we're seeing in the Middle East right now, that can lead to a lot of potential political and social change. Um, and a lot of people right now in the news are making opinions or suggestions saying, this is happening in these authoritarian regimes in, in the Middle East, you know, might this happen in China? And uh, we'll see how that plays out. Religion is coming back in China in a big way. Of course, during Mao's reign in China, religion was poison. Uh, it was <coughs> never really uh, condoned. You shouldn't kind of, you shouldn't really be religious. The, the party and the, and the Maoism was kind of your focus and your only thing that you really needed to worry about. But, but since those times, uh, religion's coming back in a big way. And uh, Buddhism and Taoism and the temples around Shanghai even are full on a daily basis. And this is uh, an image from Shanghai. Young people and old. Uh, there's a lot of uh, change happening in China where, where people are starting to actually own things, which is a very new concept in China. They're, they're starting to have property, which was, which was just not possible 30 years ago. And here we have a story I did with the New York Times where this woman is organizing a group of homeowners in, a, in an apartment complex just outside of Shanghai where they wanted to run a high-speed train through their neighborhood. And the homeowners decided that this high-speed train would be loud and dangerous, and it would um, lower the value of their homes. And they actually organized themselves and protested against the government. And at that time, they had uh, actually stopped the project, which, which is revolutionary. Uh, I mean, it's, that kind of civil action is something we see in, in Western Europe and North America all the time. But for that to happen in China was, uh, was quite, quite impressive. This is a farmer in Jiangsu province who had his home destroyed um, to make way for a tourism resort. And uh, he wasn't compensated and he was actually beaten. Uh, there's one of the biggest problems in China is there's no legal recourse or media recourse for land seizures. And uh, they're trying to pass laws in China right now that stop local officials from just making land grabs, and this is absolutely infuriating the farmers and the agrarian people in China. Uh, I was unlucky enough to be in Sichuan during the earthquake, which was horrendous. And as a journalist, as a photographer, working in a situation like that, it was very interesting to see the dynamics. I was there for two weeks, working out of Chengdu, basically, 
And for the first week, you had this outpouring of, of grief, uh, not only from the Chinese media, but from the Western media and from the Chinese people. And it was all about finding survivors and documenting those people. And as they uh, needed medical aid and food and tents, tents were a big issue because it was raining and quite cold in some remote areas. And I remember when I was there for the first week, the military were helping us, the foreign journalists, that is. And I actually hitchhiked on military trucks to get into some of the more remote areas that were affected by the Sichuan earthquake, which is just unbelievable. There's no way you know, a military truck would ever just give you a lift uh, in China. They always stay at arm's length. But then the second week of the coverage, people started asking, why did all these schools fall down? And, and, and you know, we started looking at all these schools that had collapsed, but all the buildings behind the school and around the school had actually stayed up. And then we, you know, the stories started coming out that the schools weren't properly built. They, were, they had shoddy construction. And that's when everything closed down. All the access to foreign journalists and even domestic journalists was just shut down. All of a sudden, you need permits to go to certain towns. All of a sudden, they were starting to arrest people. And they didn't, they didn't like this kind of negative coverage. And this is kind of the yin and the yang of, of dealing with, with, with the Chinese authorities about reporting and doing work in China, is that from one second, it can be open and and very Western-like where you're working in a free environment to just being completely censored and, and closed off. And of course, this was one of the mothers who lost one of her children. Yes, we should go into questions and answers now. I'm sorry. Unemployment in Dongguan, and of course, that's from the cover. Pollution is also a big problem. And you can get a front row seat to pollution if you, if you take one of those chairs. <laughs> <coughs> um, Tibetan festival. Dongguan, healthcare. So the list goes on. Questions and answers. <laughs> Thank you very much for dealing and putting up with that. I really didn't want to interrupt you because no, I, these are all fascinating. But I suppose good. people can also, um, can we also <coughs> access these photos maybe on your um, website? Um, the ryanpile.com. You guys can check it all out and, and follow. I blog and write about my work in different things in China. So you'll have an opportunity to even stay in touch afterwards if you want. All right. Um, I guess now we have probably 15 minutes for questions. Um, please wait until the mic reaches you. And also, um, just say who you are before you ask the question. Um, and can I just have a show of hand how many questions and I have a sense? Maybe we can take a couple at a time, and then um, you know you can um, talk about that. And yeah, always. Let's let's take um, three at a time, and then yeah. yes, the one back there. Uh, I th that's the first hand I saw. Uh, please speak to the mic. ever deal with the issue about Orientalism when you're gazing into the life of the Chinese people? What's the standards of your, are you putting the Western culture as a standard or you just adjust to the maybe Chinese standard? I think that in my photography... Um, you, can we take two yes, more? Yes, okay. take two more. I'll try to remember them in order. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, John, show the other yeah, one. Um, it's, a, it's a related question, so I'll just put it forward. Uh, my name is GM from the media department, and uh, as a media student, we constantly wrestle with the question of representation, and I'm sure, I'm sure you do as well in your work um, um, in capturing the reality of China. So I was wondering if you have your own strategies of, of representation, if you will, and if you could compare that with some of the more systematic uh, methodologies like uh, streetology. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's, it's by this um, um, Dutch photographer called Renke Olten, um, where she systematically catalogs um, different street scenes and putting them into categories and kind of drawing. Uh, that's, okay. like, that's, that's number two. Yeah, let's take another one and then maybe. Um, <laughs> Um, right, in the front row. Um. Hello, um, my name is Tian Tsai from the International History Department. I have a question uh, regarding your photographic practice in general. Um, um, I was wondering early on in your career as a photo photographer, um, how you approach people. It must surely must be difficult because there's a uh, Obviously, uh, language barrier and cultural barrier, and how do you 
get people to happily take it forward by you. Okay. Things like that. Great. So the first question, uh, I think that I try to enter every situation as objective as possible. And I think one of the great things is that I have kind of been covering China for 10 years and I have seen a lot. So I think that allows me to enter any situation and not have any kind of preconceived notions of what it should be or what it could be. And I just try to document the moment as truthfully as possible. I very much believe in that. Uh, I don't set up situations. Um, you know, there's, there are a lot of photographers who do a lot of artwork in China by setting Chinese people up in their homes and taking these kinds of portraits. I don't do that. I like to photograph people in a natural environment in their natural way. And uh, I don't have any preconceived notions about what it should be, what it could be, or what it's like in the West compared to what this is. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Uh, your question, uh, I'm not sure about, but why don't you come talk to me again after, because I'm not familiar with that Dutch photographer. And for you, how do I get people to open up or, or trust me or work with me when I'm taking pictures? And this is always really difficult. And uh, usually I always walk in and, and I try to keep it very light and you know, people are, know I'm oft, often working for the Western media and I sit down and I tell them, I'm like, look, you know, this factory closed down. You know, how do you feel about it? And I do work for the Western media and I am here to take <coughs> pictures and you just be open and honest. And if you can say a little bit of Latin Chinese, and plus I always say I live in Shanghai, and my wife is from Shanghai, and people are like, oh, your wife's from Shanghai. And then all of a sudden you have this kind of local banter that goes back and forth, and there's a little bit of trust that exists there. Um, because I have, you know, how long have you lived in China? Oh, 10 years, oh, that's great. And they're like, do you speak Shanghai dialect? And I was like, no, I don't speak Shanghai law. And, and you know, and after 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you know, there's, there's kind of a rapport, and, and people loosen up. And I think that the idea of having these photographers and reporters just run around documenting or shooting and running into rooms and, and you know it doesn't work you really have to have a relationship and, and some kind of level of trust and I think that, that that's important for any kind of documentation so that's how I try to do that. You get rejected often. Uh, sometimes. Yeah I mean if someone says they don't want their picture taken and they don't want to talk to me I have to respect that so I move on and then hopefully I can find someone who's also uh, willing to trust me. It happens all the time. And I, you know, especially because of that intimidation, that censorship, and that a lot of people in China are afraid to talk. A lot of people are afraid to open up. They don't want to lose their jobs. Oh, if I talk to you about this factory, I'm going to lose my job, and then my, my sister will lose her job, and then we're going to have to move home. So these kinds of things do play out. So th three more questions? Yes, as we can take another batch. Yeah, um, back there, and then um, these two in front. if you regard yourself as a journalist, but I don't mean to offend. I feel you have a strong bias here today in presenting this lecture, like all the words you choose, the censorship, the uh, corruption, and all the images you choose here is very negative. So uh, I just want to ask if you really have been living in China for 10 years, do you think yourself really understand China? You, do you think you really understand the history, the politics, the complex causes behind the China? Like, 
Mr. Ishi, you mentioned about Sanxi journalist uh, corruption. Do you, do you know how many journalists from China criticize their colleagues' bad be behavior? And such things, do you really understand it? So if you don't, I, I, I don't know how to believe that you are really being objective when you choose the image to present to your audiences like today we are here. Okay, thank you. So first one, um, permission. Okay, 10 years ago, it was a nightmare. You needed like permission to get to go outside of Shanghai. Uh, no one wanted to talk to you. But uh, today there's a proliferation of not only Chinese media, but Western media. And a lot more people are much more uh, free and open to speak with you. Obviously, if it's a controversial issue like an earthquake or, or a factory that's done something illegal or, or even a, a, an internet company that's just had an IPO, people tend to shy away from the media, both domestic and foreign. Um, but I can tell you that people are willing to speak much more uh, openly now. And when you do want to interview any kind of government officials or any kind of uh, state-owned enterprises, you do need to go through official channels. And I don't necessarily do that myself, but often the writer I work with uh, will take care of that through the magazine. Because I often work for staff writers, and they can use their magazine to get that kind of permission. Whereas I'm a freelance, I can never do that on my own. Young professionals who have studied journalism, media. 
compared to a bunch of in the industry? Excellent. So your first question, uh, do I know any Chinese journalists? Yes, I do. And uh, some of them are fantastic journalists, uh, and some of them kind of get it. They, they know that they have to, to look objectively at things and not, own, not just follow the state line, but try to actually say what's really happening in their own eyes. You know, the idea of a journalist is to take what's happening in the outside world, filter it through your own mind and your own experiences and your own education, and then deliver that product or that idea or that information to the wider world. And it, and it can't just go from you know from one to the other. You have to trust the journalists you're reading, or trust the journalists that you're taking pictures of, or that are taking pictures, and know that they are doing this filtering process. And uh, and uh, there's a lot of great Chinese journalists that understand that, but a lot of them actually work in some kind of fear, and a lot of them are actually intimidated. And I'll get, that's I'm going to get into the second question there too. Um, and a lot of Chinese journalists come out and approach people like myself and say, look. There's this stuff happening down here. I don't know if I'm the right person to report on it, but I can kind of introduce you to kind of what's happening and, and give you a phone number of someone, and maybe it's something that you might want to look at. So it is a collaboration. We don't work alone. You know, a lot of good Chinese journalists do kind of give us leads or, or give us uh, ideas about what is happening in some of the more remote areas. And I do believe that the Chinese journalists have much better access to their own country than we do. Your second question, one of my best friends in China actually studied at Stanford uh, in their journalism program, Stanford University in California, and he came back and he was an assistant for the New York Times working with Howard French in the Shanghai Bureau, and we became really good friends. We met first in 2004. And, um, and he, of course, uh, in my mind, was very open-minded. He lived in California for three years, I think, uh, two years in the program, and then a year after before he came back. And I think there are a lot of people who are going out and studying media studies in the Western world, but I don't think many of them are coming back because I feel that a lot of them are frustrated by the, the landscape in China as far as the media is concerned. It's my own personal opinion based on people that I've met, and I don't pretend to be an expert on the subject. Now, I can tell you that my friend from Stanford, when he worked at the New York Times, he was constantly called and intimidated by the local YBAN in Shanghai. And Shanghai is quite a progressive place. So you can, instead of the YBAN or the, the PSB dealing directly with the foreign journalist, who at the time was Howard French, uh, they would kind of pressure and intimidate the Chinese assistants and the office staff that worked in that bureau. And I feel that that's a bit cowardly in my own personal opinion. So uh, the, the ones that do come back <coughs> with a real kind of, not aggression, but a real kind of passion to, to do deeper, better journalism in China and really try to understand stories uh, are often kind of stunted from growing in that kind of industry. And I think that's what's keeping a lot of people from going back. With that being said, there are pockets of really great stuff going on. But I think that's the overall general trend. And I've been told that we have to stop now. Right. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Please thank join me much. to thank Ryan. <laughs>